Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. As we pick up with Esther chapter 7, our story continues to unfold. Remember that the last verse of chapter 6 may belong to this portion of the scripture rather than as a conclusion to that one. We added the chapters and verses far after this was written, and we don't always agree as to where a story separates on one side or the other. But remember that Haman has managed to get the annihilation of the Jewish people ordered, and Mordecai has gone to Hester and asked, Esther and has asked her to go to the king and plead for their case. So when she went unbidden before the king, which could have cost her her life, and he says, what do you ask of me? And she says, I just want time with you. Come have dinner with me. Um, oh, and you can bring Haman too. So they have the first dinner. And at the first dinner, the king says, what is your request? What do you ask of me? I just want more of your time. Can we do this again? So here we are. Meanwhile, Mordecai is now going to be rewarded and praised for having saved the king's life from a plot earlier. And Haman has realized that things are changing and it may not unfold well for him. And in the midst of his commiserating about this, the officials come to whisk him off to this banquet. And that's where we pick up. Banquet number two with the king, Haman, and Esther. Again, he asks her, what it is that she wants. What do you want from me, Queen Esther? And she begs for her life and for that of her people. She even says that she would be willing to accept slavery, but not the complete extermination of her people. After all, she's already a form of a slave. She would have very little autonomy to herself, not only as a woman in the culture of the time, but also as the queen she would have had very limited contact, people watching her all the time, high expectations. And so she's like, slavery, I wouldn't come to you about. But this, this, I have to say something. She uses the exact language from Haman's decree, talking about destroy, be killed, and annihilate. You can go back and check it with chapter 3, verse 13. The king immediately takes her side. And in anger, he leaves the room. I think he left the room just to keep from um, having a complete explosion. Explosion, Like, I have, I have to go think about this. Haman then, while he's out of the room, begs for his life from Esther. What an interesting change of fortune. Esther is pleading for the life of herself and her people. And now Haman is begging for his life. In treating the queen at all is already an enormous breach of protocol, but he throws himself onto the couch where she is reclining. Now, that was the style of meals at the time, that you would have the banquet table, it's kind of a low table, and you would recline on a couch on one elbow while you eat with the other elbow, eat with the other hand, excuse me. Um, and so he's gone over to plead his case and he's, you know how you do when you're just desperate and he reaches out. So he's like thrown himself on the couch 
And of course, that is when the king walks back into the room and he mistakes what is happening for a sexual assault. You have to ask yourself, why would Haman have chosen to sexually assault the queen at this particular moment? Like, the king is angry. He's afraid for his life, so let's rape the queen and see if that makes it better. It really, the king is blinded by rage. He also is still being portrayed as a fool and someone who is um, able to be manipulated and doesn't see the circumstances clearly. In verse 8, take a look at that closely. As the words left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Um, What they're telling us is that they killed Haman. Like, even as he goes, what in the world are you doing? Would you attack my queen in my house? And the servant, or maybe even the king himself, kills Haman at that point. The following is a discussion of what they should do with the body. And that is to put him on the gallows, on the impaling post that he has established for Mordecai. Moving into chapter 8, in verses 1 through 8, Esther and her people or saved, I mean, she and Mordecai, her family. But Esther, Esther is given Haman's house, um, given all of his household, not just his home, but his family, as servants, his money, his possessions, and his power. Um, Mordecai now becomes in the role of Haman. It's a complete reversal of fortune between Haman and Mordecai. But now, Esther wants to try to save all of the Jews, not just her kin, but everyone else. She dares to go to the king again. She's more confident this time, though. She's not afraid he won't receive her. She feels pretty confident, and she takes Mordecai with her. Notice that Esther is careful to deflect the blame away from the king. He knew about this edict. He signed off on it. Um, He consented to have it done. He sealed it with his official signature, but she's going to blame it all on Haman because pointing out where the king is wrong wouldn't help her. We're going to blame it all on Haman. It turns out that the decree of a king cannot be rescinded. However, he can issue another decree, which allows the Jews to defend themselves. So Mordecai writes more decrees, and the king agrees with them and signs off on them. They, the Jewish people, are not allowed to be the aggressors, but they do have defensive permission. Um, In verse 11, we see the same language again, destroy, kill, and annihilate. If they come at, at the Jews armed, then the Jews can destroy, kill, and annihilate them. The Jews are prepared to defend themselves. Um, They stop their mourning at what is coming, and they celebrate. It becomes like a festival and a holiday. Verse 17, it says that many of them profess to be Jews. Like, what is happening here? They're not talking about them converted. It's not telling us that anybody actually converts to Judaism, but there are two possibilities. The first one is that they are going to pretend to be Jews to um, avoid being attacked by the Jews. That's unlikely since the Jews are only supposed to defend themselves. The other, the most likely explanation is that it is telling us that many of the people sided with the Jews 
And so they're willing to fight with them against their fellow Jews who might be coming after them. There were many in the cities who loved the Jewish people. They were their neighbors, their friends, their co-workers, people they did business with. This is why back in chapter 3, verse 15, it said that Susa was thrown into confusion when the decree was issued. So now they're going to stand with them. It said fear of the Jews had fallen upon them, verse 17. So they have the respect of the people, um, for who they are, they they care about them with kindness, but they also see that good things are happening to them, and they would have attributed that to the deities. So, hey, the gods are smiling on them. We want to be on, on that side. Chapter 9, verse 1 through chapter 10, verse 3 is now going to give us an explanation for the festival of Purim, which is the festival that remembers the book of Esther. Chapter 9 starts, and we see that the Jews prevail. Now, we might flinch at the brutality contained in this story, like many of the others in the Old Testament, but the story intends to indicate that this is an us-or-them situation. It is a kill-or-be-killed situation, and understandably, they'd rather not die. The passages will repeatedly emphasize that they will not plunder the people that they're killing. They are defending themselves. They are standing their ground, even though they have been given permission from the king to plunder the people who attack them. They will not do it. If you remember, we've already seen similarities between King Saul, the first king of Israel, and Mordecai. Uh, Remember that plunder, taking plunder when they weren't supposed to, was Saul's downfall in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. We're told that in the city of Susa, they killed 500, including all the sons of Haman. Um, Haman sought the end of the Jews, but instead it is the end of his family. The king also grants Esther's request to allow them one more day to to finish their defense, and it's granted. The story tells us that there are 300 more who are killed. This large number, a total of 800 people in the city of Susa, and another 75,000 in all the territories of the empire, this large number fits with the Near Eastern tendency in in a literary style to exaggerate numbers to emphasize victory. The second day also explains why there were different patterns of Purim celebrations, why some celebrated one day and some celebrated two. In verses 17 and 18, we see these differences, that they rest on the next day and they have a party. So they rest after finishing this work the way God did on the seventh day after finishing creation. In the outer areas, they fight on the 13th, and they rest on the 14th. But in the city of Susa, they fight on the 13th and the 14th, and then rest on the 15th. In verse 19, we also see that the celebration remembering this um, involves exchanging gifts. They shared with one another and sent gifts to one another in celebration of having been delivered. Verses 20 through 23 we see Mordecai instituting this festival that they are to remember it. In verses 24 through 28, we get a few more details. 
pure, P-U-R, is the word for the lot or for dice. Um, and it's singular, just one of them. So Purim is the festival of deliverance of Purim, of the lot. How the lot has fallen favorably for them. It is a feast that is not in the law. It's not one of the major festivals that is outlined in the Torah. Um, but it is, it, the festival name literally means the days of the lot. Um, when the lot cast against them ended up falling favorably instead. Verses 29 through 32, Queen Esther fixed this practice, giving it royal authorization. And we move into chapter 10, where it ends with a claim to the greatness of the king, King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, but right alongside him, second in command is Mordecai. And that may sound a lot to you like Joseph back in the book of Genesis, who becomes second in command to a pharaoh. The Jews are no longer powerless. They are no longer voiceless. There is harmony and peace between Jews and Gentiles, and that's how the story comes to an end. So let me share with you just a little bit about how the modern festival of Purim is observed. It's a fun holiday. It's kind of like Mardi Gras, Easter, and Halloween all rolled together. Um, they eat hamantaschen, which is a triangular-shaped pastry that could have savory or sweet stuff in it. Um, the name literally means Haman's hats. Um, so it's the idea is that he's wearing one of the Persian hats that was triangular in shape. Um, sometimes they even burn an effigy of Haman, kind of like having a bonfire and burning the effigy. They tell the story, and they do it with heckling. There's booing or noisemakers being sounded, or stomping of feet, all 54 times that Haman's name is mentioned in the story. And in some traditions, anytime they say Mordecai or Esther, they send up shouts of joy. They tend to exchange baskets of gifts, kind of like Easter baskets that included pastries, wine, candy, chips, all sorts of snacks. Um, some of the Jewish communities have carnivals. There would be costumes. They would have parades. There would be dancing and crafts and games. And the costumes would not only be characters in the story, but could be just dressing up, kind of like we do at Halloween, because they're remembering that people were pretending to be who they were not. Esther pretends not to be Jewish. Haman pretends to be trustworthy. And everything comes out. There's also giving to charity. And they stopping work is not required. So it's not a holiday. It's not an ordered Sabbath. It's just a festival day. Um, and since about the first or just, yeah, around the first century AD, drinking alcohol on Purim is encouraged. Rabbi Rava, um, who writes in the Talmud, encourages people to drink until they can no longer distinguish between Avar Haman, cursed be Haman, and Baruch Mordecai, blessed be Mordecai. So you're supposed to drink until you can no longer clearly see the line between right and wrong, good and evil. It is supposed to stim simulate spiritual blindness, but also to scare you, um, to make you wary of ever being in a state where you cannot see 
good and evil. It's amazing to me how much this story parallels not only the life of Saul, but Joseph as well, but how it was also very much kind of a foreshadowing of what happened to the Jewish people under the Nazis during World War II, another time when um, someone sought to exterminate the Jewish people, and yet they were saved and delivered. And um, we as Americans finally, um, although coming late to the battle, got to be part of seeing that happen. So that's the book of Esther and the festival of Purim that is celebrated to remember it.